Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Even though Philip was making $250 an hour as a medical professional, his addiction was making it impossible for him to even pay his bills. But he ended up having a moment of clarity and checking into treatment. He was hoping to get out of treatment and jump back into his career as soon as possible. But a suspended license put him in a position where he was forced to slowly and deliberately proceed with the recovery process. Within the safety of the treatment setting, he was able to reconnect with his emotions and find long-term sobriety. We start off with Philip describing how the introduction of crack cocaine into his life sped up his addiction. They call crack a mental orgasm in seven seconds, and it's unbelievable. I mean, it it is unbelievable. I, I know, but I turned fairly quickly to cocaine once I got to where I was doing my residency. And then within the, like I said, about the last nine months, I got introduced to crack. Um, those, those two drugs to me were just unbelievable. They, they, they grabbed me up and focused me like nothing else on them. Um, I mean, I spent well into the multiple six figures of dollars on those two drugs over those four years, um, to the to the detriment of everything else. I didn't pay rent, didn't pay bills, didn't didn't do anything. So, excuse me. Um, yeah, it's 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 a powerful powerful grab. At least it was for me. Um, and there wasn't thinking or doing anything else for the time I did it. It was kind of interesting because I didn't want to stop drinking. I'm in the medical profession. I'm going to go to parties. I'm going to go to social events. I want to be able to have a drink with my colleagues and, you know, whatever. I just thought that was normal. Um, so it took a while for the alcohol part of it to become important. Um, I did want to stop using drugs because I could easily look back at the short several-year period of my life that that cocaine and crack cocaine specifically just destroyed everything. I mean, so that was easy. I wanted to stop using drugs. I didn't want to stop drinking. That took months for me to realize that they were so connected that, you know, I know AA and CA and NA all try to be separate, but from my perspective, um, and when I meet with sponsees and when I meet with my sponsor, when I say I'm an alcoholic and addict, it's the same thing from my, in my mind. And in my brain, I think it's the same thing. I mean, I think it's the same pathway, maybe slightly different, just because they're different chemicals. But, but I think the result is the same, and so it doesn't make a difference to me. Um, so in the treatment setting, I just talk about it as if it's all the same. Um, and so, you know, I learned. I had to learn that. I had to learn that, and it took a while to learn that um, for me. Um, but fortunately, I was in a treatment center or in halfway, three quarter, whatever, and I had. A safe place to be until I could learn it. Um, I know not everybody gets that gets that privilege for that to happen, but um, AA, CA, NA, I think provide that same protection. It's not quite as as rigid a protection as a treatment center is, um, like Mar, but um, but it's still, you know, if we learn to build a network, get phone numbers, make friends in recovery, and not fight everything which we are prone to do, um, it does make it easier. But it's, it's exceedingly hard for us because we're, we're by and large smart people, uh, we're by and large capable people, and we think and we've been raised in a society of you can do this on your own. Um, and uh, the 12-step recovery programs 
clearly teach us that's not the case here for the vast, vast majority, if not all of us. Do you remember what was going on in your mind? Because, I mean, obviously it's hard to get into medical school. It's, you know, you've got to be, you know, you're obviously pretty, you know, motivated and driven to a certain extent to, to get there or enough to, to get in. Do you remember the thought process of thinking like, how did I get here? Do you remember being kind of confused about how that happened mm -hmm. or? No, no. I remember thinking every day that one day I was just going to stop. I, w I still thought right up to the end that I was in control, that one day I was just going to stop. And I was so out in space, I thought everything would just go back to being normal, that everything would be fine when that happened. So it, 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 it probably took into treatment and into recovery a bit of time before I realized how much I was physically, emotionally, mentally addicted to the chemicals that I was using. Um, and again, like I said, I didn't want to stop drinking. So it took even longer with alcohol than it did with the other stuff. Um, now, fortunately, at least, you know, my limited understanding is cocaine doesn't have as big a, a physical um, dependency uh, and withdrawal as some other drugs do. And so I didn't go through the pain and suffering that a lot of people do with opioids and things like that. Um, and that may have made it a bit easier on me to understand earlier what was happening and what was going on and, and try to learn some things. When you're an arrogant ass like I am, um, it's hard to listen to other people and learn things from them unless you believe they are smarter than you and can teach you something. And um, it took a while for that wall to break itself down enough for some information to get over it. And money was a real big issue for me. I had a ton of debt when I got here. I mean, I had a ton of medical school debt, and then I had a lot of other debts because I had just burned through credit cards, you know, supplying my habit, uh, in, in amongst other things. And so um, Dave Devitt was my counselor. And Dave actually sat down with me and developed this little financial plan where I could pay $5 a month to all these I mean, I had like 18 different accounts that I had to pay on. And some were, were family that I just, I wrote, wrote letters and I put in a $5 check. And, you know, I, it was funny too because I couldn't get hired anywhere. I, I McDonald's, Home Depot, Walmart. They were like, we can't, you can't work here. You're a physician. You can't work here. And so it was tough for a, a month and a half. I got a job um, with a guy who had been in the program. I think he'd been through MAR um, doing roofing. And I I worked on the roofs of some of the tallest buildings in the northern part of Atlanta in the winter. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I just did what he told me to do. Um, and finally, I said, I can't do this. This is not for me. I can't do this. Um, and so finally, another someone else in the program whose family owned a printing company got me a job in the warehouse, and I went to work at a warehouse making eight bucks an hour. Um, was that tough being, you know, having this medical training? Yeah, I was making $250 an hour before. Even as an active alcoholic and drug addict, I was still making that kind of money, and now I'm making $8 an hour. Um it was, it was a little tough just in the very early. After a while, I was like, you know what? This is fine. I, I can only I – be, I was beginning to buy into what Dave and I were talking about, about the finances side of my recovery. Just what, what are they going to do to you? You're broke. You can't – they can't come get anything. You don't have anything they want. 
So just just make a slow effort to try to to grind your way out of it. And you know what? Grind my way out of it. It took it took you know the small stuff got paid off quickly and and the medium stuff it took a little longer and I still had some debts when I left Mar, um, but eventually all that stuff got paid off. The student loans were gone. Everything's gone. I don't owe any money from when I owed back then, and it was a little over two hundred thousand dollars at that point. Um, I, w- I was part of the ARP program, the the Recovery Professionals program, while I was here, um, meeting on. We met on Tuesdays and Saturdays then. I'm not sure if they still that's still the same schedule. But that was very helpful because we could talk about professional issues outside of the general group setting. Um, that it was it was just helpful. We could help each other. And, you know, I did this. You know, I did that. Um, and this is what I did to resolve it. And this is how I worked with the board. And this is what you can expect. I mean, because I had no idea. When I first got here, I actually wanted to go to the board to get my license back right then and there. And Yule Hardman was the men's director at that time. And he was like, you don't want to do that. You just, you're not ready for that yet. And I, I kept pushing and pushing. He said, okay, we'll go. So we went. And they asked me to step out of the room and Yule did his spiel, whatever it was. And I came back in the room and I didn't get to say anything. And they said, we don't think you're ready yet. And so I had to wait six more months. Now, if I had been listening, Yule probably told me that it's a minimum of a year before they're going to give you your license back. But I didn't hear that. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to go. I, I wanted to start back my life. I had this all this knowledge now about myself and my my addiction and alcoholism. And now I was ready to go, even though I wasn't really ready to go. So fortunately, um, you know, I, I got integrated into the, into the halfway group, started going to AA meetings. I found that they had CA here um, in Atlanta. And so I joined a CA group. I had, so I had an AA home group and a CA home group. Um, uh, both of which were great. And I got, and the, the guys of the CA group, um, that I got it, you know, close to were, were very, uh, into the big book. Um, and so I learned a lot. I, I actually lived down here and my sponsor lived in Forsyth County and I drove up there every Monday and spent three hours with him going through the big book. We would read, we would talk about it. It was a group of six of us. It was three people who had been through the book and and three of us who were sponsees. And so we had this roundabout discussion about what the big book meant, what it said, what it did. Um, and as as we got to work that needed to be done, we did the work, you know, fourth step, fifth step, and then on the eighth and ninth step. And and we did every one of those as we went along. And and then down here in Mar, we were dealing with that, but we were also dealing with, you know, the family issues and the financial issues and the work issues that go along with the recovery part of it. I mean, because it's all recovery. It's, it has to be a recovery of everything. And and so I got my license back, but I didn't get in I didn't get into medicine very quickly. It was two years later, you know, two years later before I actually actually it was like four years later before I got into clinical medicine. I I uh, so I like to think that for me especially, I, I am very oriented to 12-step recovery now. I bought into everything that, that it talks about, that it says. Um, I believe it. I believe it works. I, I have a sponsor. I am a sponsor. Um, I have a service position. Um, I believe in the program as a way of life. Um, it doesn't mean I follow it 100% or do it perfectly, but, but, I, but I believe in what it says and that it works when people work it. Um, for me, more than anything else, treatment was a safe place to be 
while I got that ingrained. And it gave me time to talk about and work through some of the other things outside of the addiction part of recovery, even though that was a big part of it. Are there any unique challenges, you think, to being a professional or medical professional and having that um, and being in recovery? Um, in the short term, yes. In the long term, I, it, there shouldn't be. Uh, in the short term, yes, because there are a lot of hoops to jump through. I mean, if, if you're dealing with licensing and health safety issues and what have you, then there are hoops to jump through. I mean, it, it's just the way it is. Um, and it's, it's, it, I understand why it's there um, and needs to be there. Um, doesn't make me any happier about it. It, it would have been, in my, in my head, it would have been easier on me not to have to deal with all that. But having to deal with all that made me accountable, especially after I left MAR. I still had three and a half or so years on my probation that I had to deal with, and I dealt with them in three other states. Um, but you know what? I was willing to do what they wanted me to do because I wanted what they were offering, which was my license to practice. Um, you know, we, it, the, the great thing about recovery is we get choices back. And so I could have made the choice to say, to heck with this, I just don't want to deal with this, and I wouldn't have gotten a license back. And so I had to go do something else with my life. But I was willing to give them a little bit of my power over my choice, and I gave them the choice. And they said, if you want this, then you'll have to do this. Um, and that's the way life is. You know, we none of us are completely and 100% on our own. It's just mm -hmm. not the way it works. Um, even though I thought that's the way it was supposed to be growing up, I wanted to be completely independent. And the reality is we're completely interdependent. We have very little true independence except that we can make the choices. We could suffer the consequences of the choices, but we can make the choices. Well, I made the choice to follow the board's rules, and so I had to do what the board said um, to keep my license. Um, and actually, I, it's funny because the medical director of the board actually let me off my probation three months early because I'd done everything they told me to do. And um, he said that this never happens. But but you've done it. You've done it all. I mean, you've just done everything you're supposed to do. And the the, the counselors that were here then, and I think some of them are still here now, um, understand that. And that was one of the big benefits. I, it's nice the the counselors that were here when I was in Mar, and and who some of whom are still here now. And I'm sure the ones that are that are have come since have this same understanding of it. Takes different ways of dealing with different people. And as long as, as they get that early and figure out that pathway early, I mean, some you have to constantly challenge. Some of us have to be constantly challenged. Some of us need to be brought along until we can gain enough confidence to deal with the challenge. Because if you challenge some people, they would just faint. Um, uh, but, you know, the counselors have been through training and they understand that. They know. And, and, and I think, believe it or not, even though we like to isolate, <laughs> we're pretty transparent people. We, we can be figured out fairly quickly. I'm talking about alcoholics and drug addicts. We can be figured out pretty quickly. Um, we, there are only a few buttonholes that we fit. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, 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 the counselors um, figure that out pretty quickly. I think it doesn't take long. I think a conversation or two, and, and we, whether we don't say anything or we say everything, 
So I think it's, I don't think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I, I, the experience that I had and the experience that I've seen um, in, because I continue to come to ARP meetings some and some of the, I, here, I, at I Mar. Would, here at Mar, and yeah. I would continue to come to some of the, the other sessions just sitting in as, as a guest. I, I see the different counselors do that. Um, and obviously seeing an isolated incidence isn't the same as seeing it over a period of time. Um, you know, people that are in the treatment center for a period of time, they're able to walk down the path and whether it's opening them up or actually shutting them down a little bit so that they can focus, um, uh, the, the two different major pathways that we need to go down. I think, I think Morris has figured that out. Mm. Um, so this is the last question I always ask people, but if there's a, a bit of wisdom or something that you've gained from your experience um, that you could distill down to piece of advice, what would it be? Um, as hard as it is, um, the, the, the best thing anyone can do is participate, even if you don't believe it when you start, even if you think it's all a bunch of sh- I don't know if you put that in the podcast or not, but I'm going to say it. Even if you don't believe any of it, just try. Um, give it an effort. Uh, I, you know, when I entered treatment, I wasn't. I was truthful in the literal sense when I did my assignments and wrote my stuff, but I didn't have any idea what it meant or what it felt. It was just words on the paper. Um. But that's okay, I think. I think that can come later. I think that takes time, at least for some of us, to trickle from, you know, people say from your heart, head to your heart. Um, I didn't have a heart when I got into treatment. I didn't know what that was. I had completely walled that sucker off. Um, it was all intellectual thinking, understanding, wanting to get it um, from an intellectual smart standpoint. Um uh, it took a while for that to break itself down. And I'll tell you when it happened. It happened in a three-quarter meeting here um, at MAR. I was sitting in the three-quarter meeting, and uh, I still get emotional about it um, because I think back to that's that's when my recovery really started, I think. Not my sobriety, but my recovery. Um, I was sitting in a meeting, and I can't remember who was leading the group. Maybe it had been Bill um, at that point. Um, and I just said, I'm lonely. You know, I, I could talk to any and everybody. I could get along with any and everybody. I didn't have any big outward issues. But I was an arrogant, self-centered, selfish ass. And I treated people that way. Not necessarily in a direct sense, but in comments or whatever. I just, that's the way I treated people. Because I was better than everybody. And I still had that sense of myself. And I was lonely and miserable. And I'll, I'll never, we were, we were in the big room over there, a group of about 12 or 15 people in three quarter. And I just said, I'm lonely. I'm miserable and I'm lonely. And I think my true recovery life started that night because a brick got taken out of the wall. And, uh, and that was, that was important. And that happened here. Um, not everybody has something like that happen here. Some people have that happen down the road, back home, wherever. Um, but I, I, I'd gotten to a point where I was willing to be that honest. 
And I hadn't been honest in a long time. I told the truth a lot, but I hadn't been honest in a long time. And so that's probably where I really worked step one in a, from a life standpoint, not just from an alcohol standpoint, alcohol drug standpoint. Um, that's when I really was honest with myself and with, with people that I, I took a risk. I took a risk and decided I could trust them and say that and feel like I was not going to be. But, you know, this was in, I guess this was in November of 1999. So I was eight months clean. I was starting my four-step with my sponsor at that point. So it, a lot happened right around that time. When I did my four-step with my sponsor, so so when I was in treatment in Louisiana, you had to do the first five steps. So I did a four-step there, and I was very truthful. I was very complete. It was studious. It was homework. I wrote it all out. When I did it here with my sponsor, I had had that moment. And so when I went back and looked at them, they were almost identical. But the one I did here had meaning behind it. It wasn't just words on the paper. The information was the same, but what they what it meant was completely different than what the first one meant. Um, I mean, they were almost identical down to the number of people, down to the number of fears, down to the order they were in. I mean, and I didn't look at it. I didn't look at the other one. But there were probably less than ten percent difference in the in the uh -huh. in what I wrote on the two four steps. Um, so the information was the same, but what it meant had was new. There was something there now. It wasn't just words on the paper. And having that breakthrough uh, at Mar in that three quarter group allowed that to happen because the four step came right after that. And so all of a sudden, these words I'm writing on the paper have meaning. They have feeling. They have emotion behind them. There's something there now. Um, you know, 20 years later, I'm not any kind of perfect person. Um, uh, I I believe in and I participate in 12-step recovery in AA. Um, and I believe that lifestyle, that pathway can help anyone. Um whether it's in AA or in one of the other 12-step groups. Find a good group. Find some people you can trust and develop those friendships over time. Um, and, and that can happen. For me, I needed that, that safe place beforehand, not just to set me on that path, but to deal with the other things that AA doesn't deal with. And um, Mar was able to do that because I really didn't do that at the first treatment center. It was more about getting through those five steps. Now, we talked about family and finances and all that stuff. But but it was the halfway three-quarter time, the, the nine, ten months that I spent there that was most meaningful for me here at Mar. You've got more time to think about your life now because you're back in it a little bit and how that intertwines in recovery or how recovery intertwines in life. And for me, after a period of time, I realized that there's not a separation. They're the same thing for me. I really like the thing you laid out of the, the two four steps. Um, yeah. that, and it's like, do you think the difference was being able to admit that you were lonely or yeah. That, that yeah, was, it was it, it was there that instance 
Yeah, and it wasn't an active thought of, oh, now I have emotion and feeling. It was it 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 took a brick out of the wall that allowed some of that to come out. And so when I'm writing the the four step the second time, I I'm having emotion and feeling associated with the event or the person or the fear or whatever it was. Content hasn't changed, but yeah, your content was basically the same. Wow. That's that's pretty cool. And in the way you described that really helped me kind of see that the different, you know, bridging that from the head to the heart, the the bridge over that or the ladder, however mm-hmm. you get get down there is like it's um participation. It's risk, you know, it's it, it, emotional it is, risk. It is it is a risk. Yeah. It is a risk because if you were an alcoholic or drug drug addict like me, you built a huge massive wall around your heart because you didn't want to feel anything. And that was the whole, that, that's not why I, I drank and did drugs because I enjoyed the way they made me feel. I mean, I believe the doctor's opinion is absolutely true. I mean, after a time, the wall was so rigid, there was nothing, I mean, there was no feeling there anymore. It was, I, I have to do this. I don't have a choice. There was not a conscious decision to do it. It was going to happen. Um, just like the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It was going to happen until something had to break that. And from my perspective, um, I had I had gotten to a place where only a power greater than myself, whom I choose to call God, was able to break that. And he did it at 11.30 on Sunday, March the 14th, 1999. Um, now, he wasn't finished. There was more to be done. So back to your very first comment about about that, um, about doing something, having those aha moments, and then doing nothing about it. Well, there was more for me to do. Now, I I had no idea what it was. Um, I had no idea what I was really getting myself into. Like I said, I'd been to this treatment center, this other treatment center for seven days when I was still in active alcoholism. I was on the phone to my dealer before I even got back to town. Meet me here, such and such and such. So obviously it didn't work. I didn't I, I was the guy and we we laugh about it in A means I was the guy that walked in and, and I said, uh, I don't do that one. I won't do that one. I'm not gonna do that one. That one I can do, I don't mind. Oh, and twelve, I'll be happy to help you with your problems. I mean, that's that was me. I did that. And people laugh about it, but I was I, absolutely I can remember sitting there doing it. And the traditions I didn't really even look at. I didn't just like traditions, what's all that? Um so I, I'm fortunate. I mean, I I am, and, and this was in the treatment program, not in an AA meeting. That 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 all happened because they had him up in the in the room. I I'm a guy who has one white chip, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm not willing to give it away. Um, um, so I'm going to do what I have to do on a daily basis. And like I said, it's not really a have to anymore. It's just part of who I am now. It's what I do. Um, and it doesn't mean I can't go on vacation for a week or two and not go to a meeting. But it also means I can go to London and go to an AA meeting. I can go to Paris and go to an AA meeting. I've been to Athens to an AA meeting. I went to an AA meeting in Florence, Italy this past summer. It's kind of nice. It's available everywhere. Um, it's it's a challenge for people to just go directly into AA, though, because it's not often a safe place. Not that the AA meeting is not a safe place, but their life around the AA meeting isn't a safe place for them. And I don't mean that it's necessarily physically unsafe, though it can be. It's emotionally and mentally mm-hmm. unsafe. They don't have anything to support them. 
And so from my perspective, that's where the treatment program like MAR is vitally important. Number one, number one, two, three, four, and five, it's a safe place. And then all the other stuff can happen. The talking about the family, the talking about the finances, the talking about the jobs, the talking about the relationships, um, the working on recovery and integrating all of those things into what we call life. Um, and so uh, MAR, from my perspective, is an extremely safe place to allow all of that to happen. The counselors here, at least the ones that I knew, again, some of whom are still here, are exceedingly good at bringing that out if, if we're willing to allow that to happen and take a risk. I mean, you know, we took risks to, to do drugs all the time, right? But yet this is a harder risk to be open about something, to be honest about something. It's, it's, we're funny people. We're just funny people. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.